Well, here we are with season two of the Medici podcast titled The Golden Age. This episode is The Renaissance, The Old. to go to themedicipodcast.com for maps, bibliographies, and more, and also for ways to support the podcast. Uh, We also have a Patreon up, and if you subscribe, you can get access to bonus content, including tangent episodes on extra topics and other rewards. So yes, we're 13 episodes into the Medici podcast, and we just got to the Renaissance. Here's hoping you all find it worth the wait. Let's talk about the Renaissance. Because the Renaissance was a truly international movement, and not at all the exclusively Italian zeitgeist we tend to think of it as, to talk about it, it's almost impossible not to jump around in space and time. So for the sake of trying, possibly in vain, to keep things tidy, I split my discussion of the Renaissance into two parts. First, we'll talk about the old, how the Renaissance looked back into the past. And for the second part, we'll get into the new, meaning how the Renaissance looked forward or looked away from the past. But to talk about how the Renaissance was, by definition, a rebirth of the classical past, we'll have to go back in time quite a bit. So when this relatively new monotheistic religion called Christianity became the state religion of the Roman Empire in the 4th century, much to the surprise of many people at the time, There were tensions between Christianity and the old polytheistic culture. Tertullian, who has my vote for grouchiest of the Church Fathers, wrote in his treatise, Prescription Against the Heretics, quote, What has Athens to do with Jerusalem? And another Church Father, Jerome, who was chiefly responsible for the Latin translation of the Old and New Testaments, that would become the official version of the Bible for the Catholic Church, called the Vulgate, claimed he once had a dream where no one less than Jesus Christ himself put Jerome on trial and accused him of not being a Christian, but a Ciceronian. In fact, if we skim accounts of the 4th and 5th centuries, particularly how the more moderate Christians in the Roman Empire who actually wanted to coexist with the polytheists lost out to the hardliners, who ended up getting the emperors to outright outlaw paganism. We might think Christianity purged the old pagan culture. We might even assume we might even assume it was a lot like the Taliban in the present day, destroying Buddhist monuments in Afghanistan, or ISIL destroying the ruins of ancient Palmyra. And in fact there were cases where Christians especially the violent fanatical mobs led by radical monks and priests 
that plagued the empire in the second half of the fourth century did engage in acts of murder and vandalism. Many already know about the brutal murder of Hypatia, the mathematician and Neoplatonic philosopher in Alexandria, who was killed just because it was thought she was an enemy of the city's bishop. But there were other incidents of holy mayhem, like an Egyptian temple dedicated to Ramses II, which was vandalized by Christians with crosses and graffiti. Nor could the Christian emperors resist the temptation to put the squeeze on the beleaguered pagans for some quick cash. Even under the earliest Christian emperors who at least told the public that they simply wanted polytheists and Christians to get along, the government would sometimes liquidate pagan temples and their treasures for money or to convert the buildings into Christian churches. But on the whole, while the hardliners did eventually get the government to back their campaign to drive the pagans underground, there was much less support for the idea of a cultural revolution, ancient Christianity style. For starters, the old gods were just too ingrained in the culture to be easily exercised. The planets, constellations, and the names of some months were named after the gods and other figures from Greek and Roman mythology and history. And with the exception of a minority of languages, including Portuguese, modern Greek, and Icelandic, the days of the week in modern Indo-European languages still refer to the Greek and Roman gods or their closest equivalents in other cultures, even after 2,000 years of Christianity. Also, while Christian authorities happily exploited the growing hostility toward paganism to fill their pockets, they were also surprisingly aware of what we would call cultural heritage and preservation. The Christian emperors would occasionally issue proclamations against Christian mob violence and defended particularly ancient and esteemed temples from being vandalized or looted. In the 6th century, alarmed by how the people of Rome were scavenging building materials from the ruins of the now-decayed city, no one less than Pope Gregory I ordered that even the remains of pagan temples and statues should be protected. But what probably did the most to save the pre-Christian heritage of the ancient world was Christianity's earliest public relations issues. Painfully aware of how their religion was seen as just a fad among women and slaves, the early Christians knew their best chance of survival lied with appealing to the educated Greek and Roman elite. And you didn't do that by telling them that they'd have to throw out their copies of the Odyssey in the place of Sophocles, and instead be happy just reading the Psalms and the sermons of John Chrysostom. Lastly, it helped quite a bit that the gods were not often seen as a real threat. Naturally, there were some early Christian writers who genuinely believed that the gods had a spiritual existence as demons. And many of the common people thought the old temples dedicated to the gods were haunted. Others, however, would cite the famous 4th century BCE Sicilian philosopher Euhemerus, who argued that the stories of the gods were just based on legendary kings, heroes, and scholars from the distant past. Euhemerus's ideas were so long-lasting and so widespread, even in the Middle Ages, it was taken for granted that the pagan gods were actually historical figures who lived far back in the deepest mists of time, 
at more or less the same time as the patriarchs of the Bible. So the kings of England traced their genealogy all the way back to Woden, or Odin, who they thought of as a prehistoric king. And yes, this means Queen Elizabeth II is technically a distant descendant of Odin. Also the Franks, the people who gave France its name, claimed they were descended from another refugee from the city of Troy after the Trojan War, named... I'll give you time to guess. Ready? His name was... Francus. Medieval writers would also describe Mercury as a great sage who invented the first alphabet, Venus as the world's first courtesan, Atlas as an early astronomer, and Saturn and Jupiter as renowned kings of the island of Crete. So, if the stories of the gods were just historical accounts that got twisted in time into religion and myth, there is no harm in writers and artists using them for allegorical purposes. As the historian Gene Sesnick put it, the pagan divinity served as vehicles for ideas so profound and so tenacious that it would have been impossible for them to perish. The standard educational curriculum, especially in Italy and the Byzantine Empire, still involved learning rhetoric by writing speeches coming out of the mouths of mythological figures. Writers and scholars didn't even have any problems mixing and matching Christian and pagan figures. Even comparing Jesus himself to the mythical musician who returned from the underworld, Orpheus. The further quote says, Nick, In this strange game of changing places, Christ may become a Roman emperor, an Alexandrian shepherd, or an Orpheus, an Eve of Venus. On the other hand, Jupiter may appear as one of the evangelists, Perseus as St. George, Saturn as God the Father. But no god is now represented in his traditional form as a divinity. Mythological heritage has so disintegrated that in order to take stock of its remains, we find it necessary to distinguish between a pictorial and a literary tradition, which had become completely separate. Neither tradition by itself was able to keep intact the memory of the gods. Thus the Renaissance, rightly seen, is in no sense a sudden crisis. It is the end of a long divorce. It is not a resurrection, but a synthesis. Probably a good example of all this in action was what happened in the German city of Augsburg in the early 16th century, when a statue of a saint was replaced with a statue of the god Neptune, who was invoked to represent the city's long history as a major trading hub. The local church authorities were enraged and went over the heads of the city elders directly to the Holy Roman Emperor, who declined to lift a finger to help them. Now, this isn't to say that the Renaissance didn't see a massive change in how people looked at the gods and the myths of antiquity. Much of the knowledge of the Greek-speaking West had been lost or had become obscure in the Latin-speaking West. Much of the knowledge of the Greek-speaking East had been lost or had become obscure in the Latin-speaking West since the collapse of the Western Roman Empire. One of the many consequences was that artists and writers in Western Europe were familiar with Greek and Roman mythology as filtered through Arabic sources, but not 
from the original Greek and Roman writings themselves. So when medieval Latin Europeans drew, say, the hero Perseus, they thought of him wielding a scimitar, while Hercules would often be seen sporting a turban. What the scholars and artists of the Renaissance did was start going back to the actual ancient sources, when they described or depicted the old gods and stories, giving them the forms we would still recognize today, and which also would have been recognizable to people in the ancient world. Part of what made this happen was one book, Boccaccio's Genealogy of the Gods. Commissioned by King Hugh IV of Cyprus, it was a huge multi-volume work that tried to untangle the complex and often contradictory family relationships between the Greek gods. The work was so taxing, in fact, that although an initial version of the book was published in 1360, Boccaccio kept having to go back and make corrections and expansions until his death 14 years later. Boccaccio did draw on some medieval sources, but he also made the almost revolutionary choice to actually go back to the original Greek texts, like Ovid's Metamorphoses. But it wasn't just that Boccaccio made Check Your Sources fashionable again. Greek texts like the kind Boccaccio used were becoming more accessible by the second half of the 14th century. One person who helped make this possible was a native Greek. Georgios Gemistus was born in Constantinople sometime between the years 1355 and 1360. Although he was an active and well-respected member of Byzantine civil society, and even enjoyed the favor of the emperor, Georgios was so fascinated by ancient Greek philosophy, the church suspected him of heresy. In fact, he started going by the pen name Plato which he came up with just because it sounded similar to the name of his idol, Plato. Also in his book on the laws, he made the radical proposal that the endangered Byzantine Empire should abandon Christianity altogether, and instead embrace a new religion that would combine ancient Greek polytheism and Platonic and Stoic philosophy, with a little bit of the teachings of the great religious prophet Zoroaster mixed in. Needless to say, maybe, he only shared the book with close friends, and after his death, the Patriarch of Constantinople quietly had it burned. We only know it existed at all, because Plato wrote a summary of it himself, that was kept by one of his Italian disciples, Cardinal Bessarion. Plato's real legacy was helping bring the ancient Greek world back to modern Italy. I'll revisit this more when we get around to the life and times of Cosimo de' Medici. But for now, Plato eventually winded up in Florence as part of a Byzantine delegation to negotiate the reunification of the Roman and Orthodox churches in exchange for the Pope whipping up a new crusade to save what was left of the Byzantine Empire from the Ottoman Turks. As you know, if you've ever heard the song Istanbul, not Constantinople, this didn't work. But Plato and Cosimo did meet, and Cosimo agreed to bankroll Plato's idea for a regular symposium, the Platonic Academy, which met for many years in the Medici Villa of Correggi in the suburbs of Florence. 
before his eager audience who came from across Tuscany and even across Italy to see him, Plato lectured on the works of Plato, which by that time had been largely forgotten in the West. Another academic bankrolled by Cosimo and inspired by Plato's lectures, Marcillo Facino, taught himself Greek and went on to translate and write scholarly commentaries on the complete works of Plato and the writings of the Neoplatonic philosopher Plotinus. The knowledge of ancient Greek Plato and Facino spread also allowed people to not just look at the ancient philosophers and poets, but also at the foundational texts of the Christian religion. Since the Gospels and most of the oldest Christian writings were all in Greek, learning ancient Greek was an invaluable tool for examining the very roots of the Christian religion. Nor was ancient Greek the only avenue for scholars to get at the development of the Bible. Less than a century later, a scholar native to the Black Forest region of Germany, Johann Rucklin, studied ancient Hebrew with the help of Jewish rabbis and scholars. Taking his insights to the wider European community and fighting against the inevitable anti-Semitic backlash, Rucklin published the first Hebrew dictionary and grammar in 1506. Almost immediately, scholars outside the Jewish community seized upon this resource to look at the original text that comprised Christianity's Old Testament. Whether they preferred to study Old Greek literature or the Hebrew Bible, these people deliberately thought of themselves as humanists. The term came out of old student slang used at universities, derived from the Latin term studia humanitatis, meaning the liberal arts, a term which itself came out of the writings of the Roman politician and philosopher Cicero. The 19th century historian Jacob Burkhardt described the humanists of the Renaissance this way. They were a crowd of the most miscellaneous sort, wearing one face today and another tomorrow. But they clearly felt themselves, and it was fully recognized by their time that they formed a wholly new element in society. If all this had happened just a couple of centuries before it did, the impact might have been way smaller, or at least taken much longer to spread out across Europe. But all of this coincided with an exciting new technological development, the printing press. Printing had been a technology used in East Asia since the 8th century CE, but a German goldsmith named Johannes Gutenberg spontaneously designed his own functional printing press, by 1439. While naturally there were diehards like the Duke of Urbino's librarian Vespasiano da Bastici, who insisted stubbornly that an old-fashioned handwritten book was far superior to these newfangled printed books, the printing press did at least make it much easier to become part of a thriving network of scholars. For example, in 1484, a printing press in Florence produced 1,025 copies of Plato's dialogues in the one year that it would have taken a scribe to make a single copy of the book. Maybe even more importantly, it made it possible for enterprising scholars to publish critical editions of key texts, whether the New Testament or Homer's Iliad, with footnotes, commentaries, and parallel texts putting up the source material 
and translations together side by side. The important takeaway is that the story of classical scholarship in the Renaissance isn't one of groundbreaking individuals who just suddenly decided, hey, it would be nice if we reintroduced Plato to Western Europe. Instead, it really is the story of how a combination of cultural factors, helped along by a brand new technology, led to the creation of a powerful and wide-reaching intellectual network. Believe it or not, the Middle Ages had their intellectuals and books written to be used as textbooks and scholarly sources, too. What had changed was it was now so much easier to get the resources or the connections you needed. Whether you wanted to teach yourself Hebrew for your own biblical studies, or correspond with someone who had just discovered a manuscript of some lost ancient Greek plays. It actually isn't all that dissimilar to the impact the internet had on the spread of knowledge. Although, fortunately, Renaissance scholars never had to try to get an article that's behind a paywall that you couldn't even get at most university libraries. But anyway, the fad for primary sources had deep roots, long extending past the invention of the European printing press. These roots stretch back to the decline of scholasticism, the dominant philosophy of late medieval Europe, which stressed looking to the accumulation of commentaries on the source across generations, rather than the original source itself. For instance, in 1496, the English priest John Collette scandalized his contemporaries when he preached on Corinthians, and instead of just referring to the Latin commentaries, he only cited the original Greek text. I'll get more into scholasticism and its downfall next episode, because I suspect this episode will already run too long. Wow, who knew talking about the Renaissance would get so complicated? Anyway, two other reasons were that society was getting richer and messier, as well as the investiture controversy, both of which we talked about back in Season 1. Both defenders of the rights of the Holy Roman Emperor to rule over Italy, and the people serving the growing commune governments, were attracted to the old Roman law books and the ideas on politics laid down by the Greek philosopher Aristotle, who, unlike his teacher Plato, was still well-known to Westerners. These interests led to a demand for revised collections of Roman laws, as well as a new Latin translation of Aristotle's works, which were distributed to different law schools and universities across Europe in the 11th and 12th centuries. The Romans were never that great at philosophy or culture, but they were always fantastic lawmakers leaving behind a law code that was simple yet precise, perfect for an urban society. This, coupled with Aristotle's basic idea that human beings were political animals that fundamentally act rationally in self-organized societies, might as well have been tailor-made for the growing class of professional lawyers and civil servants and rich merchants in Italy. These men appeared not just in city-states like Florence and Venice, but also in the sophisticated royal courts, like that of King Robert I of Naples. They had the leisure, the education, the money, and the connections to sponsor scholars, writers, and artists, 
and even dabble in academic research and art themselves. Of course, their wives and female relatives did this too, even if for obvious reasons it was harder for them to have the liberty and independence to do it. Because of the restrictions on women's access to money and freedom, most female sponsors of scholars and artists were widows and nuns. But I'll go into more detail next time, when I delve more into patronage and talk about what the Renaissance meant for women, or at least upper-class women. Tracking down old manuscripts locked away in dusty old monasteries across Europe in the Middle East, or brought west by Greek refugees fleeing the spreading Ottoman Empire, even became a favorite hobby of these men. The Duke of Urbino, Federico de Montefeltro, started buying books as a boy. He kept 30 and more scribes employed making copies of uncovered manuscripts and spent over 30,000 ducats on his own library. A few, like the Florentine bibliophile Niccolo Niccoli, even made hunting down and copying manuscripts and editing the text to fix errors made by copyists and divide them into sections and chapters, a full-time profession. Patrons, including Cosimo de' Medici, paid him well for his services, and it was Niccolo Niccoli who managed to find surviving copies of two pivotal works from antiquity, Pliny's Natural History and Ptolemy's Geography. If anything, his clients were even more hungry for great lost books than he was. One of his correspondents wrote to him, The bug has bitten me, and while the fever is on, it helps and pushes me. Please send Lucretius, the little books of Nonius Marcellus, the Orator, and the Brutus. Beside, I need Cicero's letters to Atticus. This passion for manuscripts among the rich had more consequences than even I could possibly list here. Book collectors after their deaths often left their collections behind to universities or the public establishing some of the oldest secular libraries of Europe. The trend also enabled scholars to correct mistakes that had been built up over centuries of being copied over and over again by overworked monks. And it enabled maverick scholars to overturn once unshakable assumptions. The most famous example of this is the case of the donation of Constantine. Throughout much of the Middle Ages, it was believed that the first Christian emperor, Constantine I, had in his will granted political power over all of Italy to the Pope. The donation was frequently cited to justify the continued existence of the Papal States, and was used by Guelphs in their argument that the Pope, not the Holy Roman Emperor, was the true master of all of Italy. The priest Lorenzo Valla actually wasn't the first person to ever question its authenticity. But he was the first to basically nuke the document from orbit by examining the language of the document, looking at its historical context, and just invoking simple logic. Nor was Vala all that humble about it. At one point, after laying out the case for how absurd it would be for a Roman emperor to just hand over the heart of his empire to somebody else. He writes, But it is past time, for the sake of brevity, to give my enemy's cause, already struck down and mangled, 
the mortal blow and to cut its throat with a single stroke. This is by far the most famous example, but it isn't the only one. Elsewhere, Vala would also critique nothing less than the Christian concept of the Trinity. While he didn't reject it outright, at least not in anything he published, he did write that the theology around the Trinity owed a lot to the bad Latin translations of early Greek Christian texts. Another humanist, Colocci Salutati, proved that the author of the commentaries on the Gallic War was none other than Julius Caesar himself. In 1516, the Dutch theologian Erasmus even dared to publish his own Latin translation of the New Testament, which included annotations and corrections of the Vulgate, the old 5th century CE translation, which was the only version the Catholic Church recognized as legitimate. Some of these corrections undermined the very basis of theological ideas the Catholic Church had held for centuries. But it wasn't just about the gods of Olympus or preserving and spreading the literary and intellectual achievements of the ancients. Soon enough, it also became about a whole new, or maybe very old, way of looking at politics and a man's role in society. Let's look at Dante's political treatise on monarchy, where he argued in favor of the Holy Roman Emperor's authority over Italy. No doubt he was embittered by his experience of being exiled from his beloved homeland of Florence, just because he backed the wrong faction at the wrong time. But, deliberately or not, Dante also made a much more profound case. Essentially, he argued that the ideal state for all Christendom was to be ruled by one government under one emperor. The reason Christendom was riddled with city-states going to war against each other, and people like a certain Italian poet being exiled just because of their political affiliations, wasn't because of acts of God or because people are inherently sinful. It was because there was no strong emperor to help ensure peace and unity. But it was possible to go back to that better state of things, through the actions of the people themselves. These political ideas, drawn out of antiquity, really began to coalesce under the humanists, arguably starting with Francesco Petrarch in the 14th century. Born the son of a civil servant and merchant from Florence, Petrarch was pressured by his father into going to school to become a lawyer and civil servant. However, after being deprived of an inheritance through legal chicanery, Petrarch developed a distaste for both politics and the law, and instead devoted himself to the life of the mind. Today he's mostly famous for the love poems he wrote to his unrequited love, Laura, who was likely a French noblewoman who was an ancestor of the Marquis de Sade. So much so, the term Petrarchan love has entered the English language. But Petrarch was also a prolific letter writer, even writing letters to historical figures. And he joined the fad of collecting manuscripts early on, discovering a manuscript preserving Cicero's letters to his friend Atticus. Although Petrarch did have some criticisms of his hero Cicero, he was struck by how Cicero was both active in politics and also was a great philosopher and writer. Whatever Cicero's flaws, and Petrarch was fully aware of them, 
He did gleam in Cicero the sort of man the Italian city-states needed. It wasn't someone who shut themselves away from society generally to dedicate themselves to spiritual and intellectual matters, like nuns and monks did. Nor was it a leader who was skilled in battle and at being a courtier in royal courts, but was undereducated, if not genuinely illiterate, like so many nobles, especially in Northern Europe. Instead, it was a true statesman of the Greek and Roman mold, who did not keep political, intellectual, and spiritual matters separate, but instead appreciated how they were all interconnected. Like Dante, Petrarch also saw antiquity as a better time, superior to his own. In fact, it was Petrarch who had coined the phrase Dark Ages. In his letter to posterity, Petrarch writes, Among the many subjects that interested me, I dwelled especially upon antiquity, for our own age has always repelled me, so that had it not been for the love of those dear to me, I should have preferred to have been born in any other period than our own. In order to forget my own time, I have constantly striven to place myself in spirit in other ages, and consequently I delighted in history. Nor was he alone in having that sentiment among the humanists. Writing a century later, the Florentine architect, Philodete, wrote, I ask everybody to abandon the modern tradition. Do not accept counsel from masters who work in that tradition. I praise those who follow the ancient manner of building. Just keep in mind that when he says modern tradition, he means what we would call medieval. Humanists following Petrarch's footsteps took this new view of human nature and human agency over themselves and their societies even further. Let's look at Pico della Mirandola, a precocious and quite possibly unstable genius born to the ruling family of the Duchy of Mirandola in north-central Italy. At just the age of 23, Pico published 900 theses, defending the positions of various famous philosophers and religious leaders and groups throughout history, including, but not limited to, Plato, Pythagoras, the Jewish Kabbalists, the prophet Muhammad, Zoroaster, and Paul. Pico even announced he would hold a public debate defending all 900 theses in Rome, and offer to pay the travel expenses of anyone who would dare agree to debate him. In fact, it's possible that Pico seriously expected that his debate would become such a momentous event, it would change history, and lead to the mass conversion of the Jews to Christianity. Pope Innocent VIII personally intervened and stopped the debates. About Pico, he rather sourly said, quote, This young man wants someone to burn him one day. A papal commission censored 13 of his theses, and later on his entire 900 theses would earn the distinction of becoming the very first book universally banned by the Catholic Church. In any case, Pico also wrote a speech that he planned on using to accompany his great debate in Rome. Called the Oration on the Dignity of Man, Pico rejected the Christian and Platonic view of the material world as corrupt, as well as the idea that humans are tainted by sin. On the contrary, Pico argued, humans are dignified and even made godlike 
by their unlimited freedom of choice. Pico even goes so far as to reinterpret the biblical fall as described in the book of Genesis, not as an act of disobedience against God, but as the inevitable cosmic conflict that happens between humanity's attraction to sensuality and its spiritual nature. To emerge triumphant from that struggle and become one with God, a person had to pursue the liberal arts in order to achieve a better understanding of not only the universe, but also the self. Even more radically, Pico argued that all good ideas should be considered to have some legitimacy, no matter what culture or religion they sprung from, and there should be no compulsion in belief. Truth should, and always would, be arrived at through rigorous debate. So there's lots more I can talk about, but... I really don't want this episode to turn into something like Pico's 900 Theses, so I'll leave it there. But to summarize, humanism wasn't an organized movement, nor should we think of the modern phrase secular humanism when we talk about Renaissance humanism. Very few, if any, humanists from this period can be interpreted as calling for an alternative to Christianity, at least openly. But we should probably keep in mind historians today would probably assume Plato was a typical Christian if he hadn't summed up his own pro-Olympian god views in a document that escaped burning. Now, it is true later on the Protestants would find a lot to like in the humanist insistence on going back to the original sources, inspiring Catholic reformers like Erasmus, as well as pioneering Protestants like Martin Luther alike, to claim that they merely wanted to go back to a more authentic Christianity that existed in the time of the Church Fathers. As the very name Renaissance itself suggests, this was about trying to find better blueprints for life, religion, and society in the past. However, the humanist reconstruction of the ancient world did bring about a lot of fundamental changes in how people viewed themselves and the world around them changes that laid the groundwork for the world we live in today. And it had much deeper consequences than just the fact that, in the 16th century, parents started giving their kids lovely names like Flavia, Livia, Hector, Julius Caesar, and Achilles, like Aristotle's political animal, or Cicero the philosopher-politician. The idea that human beings had control over their own fate and the fate of the societies they lived in, became widespread. For the humanists, people weren't depraved because of the curse of Adam, but instead, through each individual's own actions and behavior, they could become like animals, or become heroic beings. Unlike with the medieval mindset, to the humanists, one's place in the community was no longer determined just by one's baptism into the church but by one's contributions to social and political life. If you could sum up how humanism and its rediscovery of antiquity caused the medieval worldview to crack and crumble, you could say it was because the humanist interpretation of the ancient world led to an understanding of humanity that was mostly independent of Christianity, as much as the humanists themselves would have thought of themselves as devout Christians. To sum it up, humanists, almost in spite of themselves, ended up erecting barriers between social and religious experience. 
between the natural and the supernatural and between civil morality and religious morality. Next time, I'm going to talk more not just about how the Renaissance changed, well, just about everything about mainstream philosophical thought, but also how the same era saw revolutions take place in the visual arts and music. Thanks for listening, and buona notte.